This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, professor in gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center and also editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Shannon Weston, who is an associate professor in gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me, Pedro. The topic of our discussion today is going to be the conservative management of patients with uh, endometrial cancer. And I um, wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on with regards to who are the ideal candidates for conservative management of endometrial cancer today? Absolutely. So with conservative management, we're trying to spare the uterus in some cases. And so that would be a population where um, they would like to retain their fertility. So this is going to be young women with early grade cancers, no evidence of myometrial invasion, and of course, no evidence of disease outside the uterus. However, we're seeing an increasing number of patients as well that are very ill um, medically ill and not really fit for surgery. And so that becomes a physician choice <laughs> where perhaps we offer something like conservative therapy in that patient population. And again, the, the uterine factors are the same, early grade, no evidence of invasion, no evidence of disease outside the uterus, but maybe they're just too sick for surgery or you want them to be able to get healthier before surgery. And Shannon, you mentioned um, the grade being one of the factors that is in consideration when suggesting conservative management for patients with this disease. And traditionally, we have felt that perhaps the ideal candidates are patients with uh, grade one disease. Uh, more recently, the question has come up with regards to, is a patient with grade two disease, as long as there is no invasion, also a candidate for conservative management? You know, I think the answer is yes. We're slowly building data around this, so it would definitely be still considered outside the standard of care. Um, but at MD Anderson, we were able to look at our own data, small numbers, um, but did have about a 75% response rate in grade twos. Again, very carefully selected, as you manage, man mentioned, no invasion, no evidence of disease outside the uterus, but a, a proportion of those patients will respond, that tumor will respond to a conservative therapy. So it's not unreasonable. And you mentioned uh, one of the criteria being no invasion. Can you give us your thoughts as to uh, what is your routine evaluation of a patient that uh, you're considering for conservative management mm -hmm. and particularly focusing on imaging studies? What is the ideal imaging study used today? Yeah, I don't think there's a perfect imaging study, so we kind of use what we have um, at M MD Anderson, we generally have been using a MRI, um, and our uh, radiologists are really great about doing certain sequences that allow for them to really evaluate the myometrium to the best of their ability. Um, you know, we do the dilation and curettage, of course. We use ultrasound sometimes, but really that MRI is the only me method we have, have to date to look at the myometrial invasion. And with regards to the um, options that you discuss with uh, patients, what are some of the things you have been using, uh, have used in the past, and what are some of the things that we need to look forward with regards to the, uh, the best treatment for these patients? Sure. You know, I think the traditional um, therapy that a lot of us have used is oral progesterone pills. And there's a number of different pills that are on the market that can be utilized. And there doesn't seem to be any difference in the efficacy across those, but it requires pills every day. And frankly, the side effects, especially the weight gain, can be a huge problem, no pun intended, mm -hmm. because, you know, a lot of these women are overweight and any weight gain is not good weight gain. So, um, 
we've been looking at other mechanisms and other methods, and primarily we've looked at the interuterine device, so specifically the levonorgestrel interuterine device, which is nice because you place it, it lasts for five years, there's not a requirement to keep taking pills, there's still evaluation that's necessary, but it really takes a lot of that um, compliant, the compliance issues out. And then from a side effect profile, it's fairly easy to tolerate. You know, the first few months people might have a little bit of bleeding or a little cramping, but after that, we don't see the systemic effects. We don't see the weight gain, and patients generally tolerate it very well. And so we've had um, a lot of success with that. And when you talk to your patients about um, success rates, what are some of the numbers you're quoting to them? Yeah, it all depends. You know, we we have data in a lot of the early um, endometrial neoplasia, so both complex atypical hyperplasia as well as grade one and then some grade two endometrioid type. So for complex atypical hyperplasia, the cure rates are awfully high or the response rates are awfully high, looking, you know, probably approaching 90 percent, maybe even higher. For the grade one endometrioid and even grade two, we see something more around 50 to 75%. And that really depends on the studies. The retrospective studies look better. The retrospective studies, we see response rates around 75%. The truly prospective studies, the response rates are more around 50, 55%. Um, and of course, you, you have to keep in mind, that's a response, but we can still see recurrence, right? So we can see refractory disease that comes back. And so that always has to be in your mind and you have to be counseling patients about that. One of the questions that comes up often from some patients and from referring physicians is, um, is there any data or any evidence to support using both the intrauterine device and in addition to that, using hormonal therapy? Very little, <laughs> to be to be clear. But there are some uh, small case reports out there. We we actually published a case report. The, the way I do, the reason I use it this way is, so say I have a patient, I put them on one of the progesterones. Typically, I'll start with the intrauterine device. And it's stable. It's not progressing. It's stable. I've still got a 24-year-old in front of me that wants to retain fertility. We know we're moving outside the standard of care, but with appropriate counseling, you can give that patient another chance. And so specifically, what we'll often do is add an oral progesterone, say Megase, to, uh, to their care. And again, close monitoring to see you know, if you get a benefit. And there does seem to be a group of patients that do need that extra progesterone mm -hmm. and seem to have a benefit from that. That's a great segue to the next question with regards to, you mentioned monitoring. Yeah. Um, what is a standard surveillance? Is there a standard surveillance uh, for, for these patients? And, and what do you do in your practice? Yeah. I don't know if there's a standard surveillance. I've certainly looked for some research around that, and it, it, it's very vague. I, I think that the beginning needs to be close monitoring. And by close monitoring, I mean biopsies every three months. So that is generally what we do in our practice. We'll do an endometrial biopsy in the clinic. The If they have an intrauterine device that can remain in place. It does not need to be removed. Um, and then I like to see two negatives. Once I see two negative biopsies, then I might push out that monitoring, maybe to six months, depending on um, the patient's goals, if they're ready to get pregnant, or if we're just continuing this for medical reasons. Um, if my, you know, if a, if a biopsy still has disease, but I feel like we're making progress, then I continue evaluation every three months until we've cleared. And you mentioned... Um if you do achieve uh, a complete response, particularly in the patient that is interested in, in future fertility, 
Um, what are your recommendations with regards to uh, counseling that patient as to when it is safe to get pregnant? Yeah, I want them to wait at least six months with a negative um, biopsy and preferably a year if we've got that kind of room. It all depends on the patient's age and their kind of fertility um, measures to start. Uh, but if we can wait at least a year, that makes me feel pretty good that we've cleared that disease, that we're not just missing one area on biopsy. And then typically what we'll do is um, enlist the the help of a reproductive endocrinologist of some kind, make sure we've got them at maximum fertility so that once we take out that interuterine device or stop the progesterone, that we're not going to waste time, that we're going to hopefully get them pregnant quick. Yeah. Um, and so there's not um, an opportunity for that disease to come back. But they have to know that that's a risk, that you know, when you stop the progesterone, there's a risk of, of that recurring. And one of the questions that um, has come up in some of uh, my patients as well um, is there a risk that the endometrial cancer will come back during the pregnancy? The great news is no, because per pregnancy is a progesterone-heavy state. And so basically you're treating that disease with the pregnancy, which is lovely. So that should not happen. Um, and I'm not aware of any kind of strange um, uh, case reports or anything around that. So once they're pregnant, it's safe. It's during that window of when you're not giving them the progesterone therapy and they're attempting pregnancy that you have to be careful. You know, and so what we do is certainly if they become pregnant right away, it's easy. But if not, I work with a reproductive endocrinologist and basically see those patients back almost on an every three month basis as well. Because if they haven't gotten pregnant yet, I want to sample their endometrium and make sure that nothing's changed. So I monitor their almost them uh, monitor them almost as if they were still being treated, um, just to make sure we're not falling behind. And is there any role for um, a completion hysterectomy at any point down the line just to prevent the risk of endometrial cancer coming back? Yeah, I, I, I don't think we know, but it's definitely something I discuss with my patients, and many of them choose to pursue that because they just don't want to deal with that down the line. So once they have achieved pregnancy, um, then we, we will consider going ahead with a hysterectomy. Um, for the patients that are medically ill, the nice thing about the interuterine device is when it works, you can continue to change it out. So that's something that they can keep for the duration um, with very little to no issues. And in the past, there were some reports regarding the possibility of a hysteroscopic resection of disease followed by adjuvant hormonal therapy. Is that something that is still being considered anymore? publications in, in that area? You know, I haven't seen any recent publications. It made sense to me, you know, get the tumor out. Um, and certainly when we when we put in these interuterine devices, we do an aggressive <laughs> dilation and keratage. You want to try to get all that disease out. So that made sense. I, I don't know that you need to do um, kind of a... a, a a image-guided resection like that, and I think it was probably a little bit difficult to make that into, you know, national and international practice. Um, so I'm unaware of any new data. Have you seen anything lately? No, yeah, no, I, I um, yeah, I think it kind of passed because it didn't add anything extra. You didn't see better outcomes, and it was a lot more work. <laughs> and um, Shannon, um, tell us a little bit about any either ongoing or completed prospective trials, particularly addressing this patient population. Sure. So we um, recently 
completed and are now putting together our publication of the single agent levonorgestrel intrauterine device. And that was in both patients with complex atypical hyperplasia as well as grade one endometroid cancer that either were um, desiring fertility or were medically not felt um, good for surgery. So they um, completed up to a year of intrauterine device, and also uh, some patients continued on past then. Um, we looked at the responses, and we saw very nice response rates, about 90% in complex atypical hyperplasia and about 60% in the grade 1 endometroid cancers. Um, and interestingly with that, we, we saw this population that we all know about that's resistant. So not, you know, maybe they have a response initially, there's some shrinkage of tumor, or even the, the tumor resolves, but then it comes back after nine months or it comes back after 12 months. We were particularly interested in that refractory group. Um, and so around that, we've designed another trial that's ongoing that selects that population. So in this trial, same group of women, young, desiring fertility, or um, grade one endometrioid cancer of any kind, um, who would you know like to, to spare their uterus, we treat them all with the intrauterine device. Um, and then we select out that population that the tumor doesn't respond, so that's stable disease. So if at three months they either have um, grade one cancer still or complex atypical hyperplasia, they're randomized. And they either continue that IUD by itself or we add a drug called Everlimus, which is an mTOR inhibitor. Um, to see if we get better responses, more sustained responses, and can overcome that progesterone resistance that we're seeing. Um, and the reason for that is we, you know, we've got some pretty neat molecular data to, to demonstrate that in the tumors that are resistant, this, this pathway that mTOR is involved with, the PI3 kinase pathway, gets revved up. And that seems to be a driver of that resistance. So what we're hoping is if we target the progesterone and the mTOR, we potentially will get better uh, results kind of down the road, more sustained. That's fantastic. That's a very exciting trial. And is that trial um, only restricted to MD Anderson Cancer Center? We are actually excited to, to note that we're opening it across our MD Anderson network, and then we're also seeking um, sites. So if you're interested, let us know. We have a few um, external sites that are getting on board, and we'd love to have more. And when do you anticipate completion of that trial? You know, it's a slow trial because it's such a select population. So I we don't anticipate completion until probably sometime next year. Um, but, you know, the more sites get on, the uh, quicker we might be able to get that done. Well, one last question, um, Shannon. Um, your thoughts on recommendation for weight reduction and perhaps even to the extent of bariatric surgery uh, in patients um, seeking conservative management of endometrial cancer? Yeah, this is something we, we talk about quite a bit. And actually, you know, there is a, a trial going on in um, Australia where they're looking at different mechanisms to um, exercise and weight reduction as part of progesterone, which is an awesome um, idea. You know, I think this is part part of it. We know that obesity is tightly linked to increased estrogen, is tightly linked to the risk of endometrial cancer, and especially in these young women um, that we're seeing. And so if there's something that they can do while we're treating them, that potentially can, one, help them clear this issue so that it doesn't recur, so that we can cure it with the progesterone and then they can go on to become pregnant, to have a normal life. But also they can help prevent a number of other medical problems that we know are tightly linked to obesity, other cancers, heart disease, stroke. So it's something we definitely talk about. I think that um, 
the use of bariatric surgery is ideal in, in the right population. So what we try to do is get patients referred to weight management groups that have all the resources. And so they can assess, is this a patient that's better managed with medications? Is this a patient that's better managed with surgery? Um, but I think for the right patient, that is an ideal opportunity while they're getting this treatment. Well, Shannon, I want to thank you very much for your time. Do you have any closing remarks you would like to make? No, I mean, I think that I'm just so excited to be here. And I do reiterate that if anyone's interested in getting involved in our trial, the Lever trial, we would love to have you. Well, thank you very much. This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Thank you.